Hello, and welcome to the first substantive episode of the Thank You and Good Night podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Julia. And for our first episode, we figured it's only natural to start with our heroine, Midge Maisel. The kind of thing that we're going to address in this episode really boils down to this is kind of a character analysis. That means we're looking at not just Midge herself and what her relationship with herself is and has been over the course of the show and gauging what we think Midge's level of feminism is now versus where it was when we began, but also looking at things like Midge's relationship with her parents, in particular her mother, and what that means for her stand-up career, what her relationship is with Joel and the potential other men in her life, and obviously kind of the friendship and the underpinning really of the show in a lot of ways, what her relationship is with Susie and what that means for Midge and what it means, you know, more broadly for the show as a whole. Anything you want to add to my general summary, my friend? I think you did well with that. Uh, That pretty much covers it and sums it all up. So we're really excited to dive in. we're going to start with because this is the order that we've planned it but also kind of naturally right our first relationship is that of our parents I really find interesting the relationship between the way that Rose and Midge fight and then the major career defining sets that Midge has after the fights so you know I've noticed that both of Midge's big professional failures so the set where she eviscerates Sophie Lennon in the first season, and then the one where she outshy in the third season, come after these massive blow-up fights with her mother, right? She has the fight in the temple where Rose is like, don't I deserve to know anything about your life, right? Blowing up about the coat and blowing up about the fact that neither person in her life told her that Joel came back, even though Rose very clearly was trying to get them back together. Even if Midge didn't like that, even if Midge didn't want her mother to do that, she still never told her mother Joel came back. She led her mother on in a lot of ways, and that kind of causes Rose to just lose it, I think is a safe description of what Rose does. And then the other, I think, interesting fight is the 3-8 fight, where it's almost for the first time we see since Joel left, Rose and Midge having this almost meeting of the minds over, I understand needing to rebuild your life because of the actions of the man of your life. Because Rose, in her own way, has a blow-up life. Now, granted, Rose contributes to blowing up her own life, as I think in a lot of ways does Midge, right? Midge chooses to go up there on stage and say what Midge chooses to say, right? It's The reason she's a comedian is because of Joel. But what Midge, the comedian, says is because of Midge, the comedian. And so for Rose to say, it's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't support you being independent and you rebuilding your life, but I physically cannot be made the butt of the joke. I physically cannot understand being the butt of the joke, and therefore I will not support a comedy career that makes fun of me. Both kind of have, boiling down to it, Rose's approval, as well as Rose saying what you're doing and how you're acting doesn't include thought of people who aren't you. 
Which leads me to, I think, and the first question we're kind of going to discuss here, which is, are these fights, which precede these massive career kind of screw-ups, right? She doesn't bomb in the moment. The audience finds them funny. But they afterwards have major career implications because of what she does to Sophie and Chai. You know, do these incidents reveal that Rose's approval is what drives it? Or is it more reflective of the fact that Rose is pointing out you don't consider other people is a precursor illustrating the fact that what Midge gets up there and does is focused on herself and isn't considered of the lateral consequences? That's a really good question to ask. And I think it's a little bit of a combination of the two. The reason why I say this is because when you really think about it in the broad context, you have to consider Midge doing everything that she does kind of in a self-serving way. A lot of what she does starts, yes, as you mentioned, with Joel blowing up her life, but she continues to do what she does because she's inherently driven and goal-oriented and is kind of in love with the idea of starting a comedy career of her own. So when she has these sort of breakdowns where she, you know, outs shy and she tries to ruin Sophie, this ultimately seems to be a way to propel herself forward. And maybe it's a little bit of naivete on her part because she doesn't realize from the outset what the implications of this are going to be. But she ultimately ends up going out of her way to destroy someone else to elevate herself. And so to me, that's always had a little bit of a selfish element, if you will. But I also have to wonder if there seems to be something deeper here, that it's a less cognizant element to what is ongoing in her life, right? She is using it more as a way to vent about what's ongoing and is frustrated with the way her mother treats her. Uh, or how she sees her mother treat her. Or as how her she views her mother treating her. You can also see as well, very early on in, in the third season, when there's the conversation where Midge says, I'm not a prostitute, I'm a comic. It seems like Rose fundamentally misunderstands why Midge is doing what she's doing and doesn't realize that this is kind of an element of liberation for Midge, whereas it seems that Abe is a lot more understanding, is willing to go to bat for Midge because he does a lot of things for her, including trying to keep her secret, ultimately going to see Lenny Bruce, you know, and is definitely not drunk beyond belief at Midge's set where, you know, Rose ultimately has to do that to stomach the performance yes, at but, the Fountain Blue. Yes, but two things I'm going to push back on. One, Rose is the one who bails both of them out of jail. This is true. I mean, she bails both of them out of jail. She could have bailed Abe out and left Lenny Bruce to rob. And two, I think part of the reason why she gets so drunk to see that performance is because she's seen two sets of Mid well she's seen one set of midges and she knows what Abe saw and I think it's important when we have this conversation about midges sets and I do think it's important that we have a conversation about what Midge says in her sets particularly because it is so much of a stream of consciousness of her life writ large the set in Midnight at the Concord she talks about her parents and not just like her mother in the way she does in the Sophie Lennon set, right? Like making fun of her mother's controlling and the perfect idea of a perfect life. I don't necessarily think that means 
Rose doesn't support her doing something other than being a housewife because if that were the case Rose would have kicked her out of the house right like Rose does all of these material things to actually help Midge live an independent life she doesn't vocally support it she doesn't go get arrested with Lenny Bruce but there are ways she could have actively stopped her daughter from doing it if she didn't support it but I think to the point of why she is so drunk at the Fountain Blue the only set Rose knows that wasn't the set on television, so like an actual nightclub set, was one where she actively mocked her mother's sex life. And like mocked her mother in the course of her mother's sex life. Right, which I totally understand. But I also feel like at the same time, and again, this is where we, we differ in this context, I feel like Midge sees it as the only resort because... She says time and time again, she tells jokes based on her life. She goes to things that she knows, and what she knows are people in her life. And if her parents are the source of her frustration, which is where her comedy career began in that Joel was the source of her frustration, she talks about things that really impact her life and make her upset. And now granted, she's becoming a lot more professional. She's evolved to something where she doesn't necessarily need to rely on that. She has other shticks that she can use and, you know, can play on just general themes that are present in her life. But the foundation of her comedy career in and of itself is more about her going on stage and venting about problems in her life rather than using it as an opportunity to just say something funny. And so maybe it's a little bit of the fact that she doesn't really quite yet have a grip on what it means to be a comedian. But at the very, very least, for her, it seems easy to tell jokes about things that she knows because they're a source of frustration and you can use it kind of almost in a cathartic and ironic sense to vent to people who are willing to listen. Midge is the type of person to run her mouth. She's very, very talkative and open and expressive and doesn't realize a lot of the things she's saying can be harmful. So she just kind of rolls with the punches and says the first thing that comes to mind, even if the consequences are severe. And so I think when you put it in the context of Rose, she has a fight with her mom. The fight's absolutely explosive. She's really frustrated with her mom and she takes it to stage because people are willing to listen and she's willing to vent it out. Right. Uh, but I definitely also think it's, interesting and I think here's where we can start shifting to our next topic with Joel how different the frustration with Joel is and the relationship with her mother is like she's obviously at a better place now with Joel than she was at the beginning of the show but I mean to the point of the sequence in Paris in that phone call conversation Joel basically says the same thing as Rose I mean it's functionally different right like I know that because I can't be made fun of I have to take a step back for your comedy career to survive, right? Which is presented in a different way and it's tonally different than what Rose says, which is I can't be the butt of a joke and support it. But they are saying functionally the same thing. And there's this turning point, right? Joel becomes less of the focus of her frustration in her comedy, even though there are things she's still frustrated with Joel about as the show goes forward than it is ever about Rose, right? Right, she has the sequence in Midway to Midtown where they fight over the apartment and then she gets up on stage and drags all the men who are being misogynistic a-holes, which totally should have been what she was doing, but easily could have then included dragging my misogynistic a-hole ex-husband who's trying to buy me an apartment. And the fact that she doesn't do it, I think, 
is kind of revealing of the nature of her relationship with Joel and maybe is also reflective of kind of back to our earlier question that these fights do serve both as a way of telegraphing for the audience that Midge does have an inability to think outside of herself sometimes but also that really there is something so primal about her relationship with her mother that a fight there is so disconcerting and so unsettling that it does discombobulate her in a way that even maybe fighting with Joel wouldn't. So I'm going to move along to the uh, next set of topics we have here, which is focusing on Joel's relationship with Midge. And since you are the Joel Midge shipper, I'm going to let you take the floor on this one. Oh boy, um, this is a big honor because I really enjoy this ship, but I did not enjoy this ship at the beginning. And one of the reasons why I didn't enjoy this ship at the beginning is because at the very, very start of the show, we see how, you know, despite how there's so much love between Joel and Midge, there's this constant need for perfection from Midge's end. And he himself does not have to live up to the same standards. And perhaps this is, you know, just speaking to the role of women in society at the time in the 1950s. But when you see the relationship, there's such a huge gap because you you realize what a flawed character Joel is as opposed to the simulation of perfection that Midge keeps up. For instance, you know, she doesn't want to come off as imperfect to him because she's afraid that he is going to view her as something that's tainted. And it seems that if he views her as tainted, that's going to be the minute the relationship breaks down. So she's constantly keeping up these appearances and she seems so strong-willed to keep up these appearances for the sake of their relationship. At least that's how I viewed it at the very, very beginning. And a lot of this is exemplified, you know, in her constant desire to make herself up before he wakes up and, you know, taking her makeup off after he goes to sleep. And then in the second, or maybe it's even the first season. I think it's the first season. Um, No, it's the second season where they're talking about... um, at Ethan's birthday. No, that's the uh, first season. Is it the first season? It's okay, the last so, episode of the first season. Yeah. So in the first season, yeah, that's right. It is the first season uh, at Ethan's birthday when they kind of have their reconciliation where she talks about how, you know, she's ready to file for a divorce. They should start thinking about it. And then they have this moment of passion and she tells him full stop in the middle of what they're doing, you know, I didn't realize we were going to do this. I used to unhook my bra for you. It's little things like that that would contribute to his sense of masculinity that she felt like she constantly had to validate him. And this is when he starts to realize, like that fundamental moment at the end of the first season is when he starts to realize that she is not this image he had of her. She is ultimately a human being like he is and she is not perfect. And... That's kind of where that housewife aspect really starts to break down, primarily when you see that his perspective of her changes and he realizes how human she is and how much she has a right to be an autonomous individual. Um, So 
I think that despite this kind of ideal perspective he had of her, once that breaks down, it seems like he's able to love her more wholly. And she seems to similarly fall in love with him more after the fact that he realizes she's not perfect and he wants her to be an independent individual. I don't know your thoughts on that, but to me it seemed like he, after that rec- like that realization, that was kind of really the turning point for them. No, I, I definitely, the thing that stands out, particularly when we talk about that, is Mitch kind of asks in so many words, so like what happened? And he says, you were a lot, Mitch. Maybe you meet a girl and she's pretty and she's smart and maybe your parents like her. And then you meet someone like Midge, who's everything. And I think this show really does deal a lot with, and I don't think it's just Midge and Joel. I think you see it in Moish and Shirley, and I think you see it in Rose and Abe, in what are your expectations of the other person in a partnership? Like, what does a marriage look like? And I think for someone like Joel, his idea of a partnership is closer to his parents than I think Midge's view, which would be her parents. And I think, not saying that Moish and Shirley and Rose and Abe are fundamentally different in terms of like, they're both clearly are equal partnerships where both people in the marriage are equal partners who do genuinely love each other. But there's a different level of performance, I feel like. Moish and Shirley are Moish and Shirley. Like they are always Moish and Shirley. They always are who they are. And Rose, I think really up until Paris, is engaging for 29 or 30 years in this very, very strictly regimented sequence that Midge does of, like, perfection and being perfection. And I think Abe is aware that it's an act. I don't think someone as smart as Abe, who knows Rose as well as Abe does, doesn't see through it. I think he lets her do it because, as he says in the third season, right, I don't want you without your clothes. I think he knows, for someone who was raised, particularly when we see Oklahoma, in a house like Rose was raised in, that is almost as much of who she is as anything else about her. Even if it is fake, even if it is a facade, it makes her feel better. It makes her feel stronger. I don't think Joel, because his mother was never like that and his father was never like that, ever has this idea in his head that someone being that perfect is an act for them too. I think he truly felt inadequate. I think he thought he needed a different life. He thought he needed to get out. And you see him remaking their life with the Methodist version of her, which as a Methodist, I think is the funniest thing in the world. Um, I, I, I really love the Methodist version of brisket is pot roast. As someone who eats <laughs> both pot roast and brisket, still makes me laugh to this day. But like, I think he doesn't realize until she actually tells him, oh no, I, I don't have these lips all the time. Like this is makeup. And like, I do it when you were asleep or like, yeah, I used to unhook my bra. I think the shattering of the facade for him is so revelatory because it's like, oh my God, she was trying as hard as I was. I just thought I was inadequate. And I think in a world in the 50s when a man couldn't have been inadequate, it shattered him. But that's just me. No, totally. I totally get that. And I was thinking about that too. That's, That's a good point. That really is kind of a breaking moment for him because... He, I kind of want to go back to the idea of Moish and Shirley. Shirley really is kind of the domestic sort of mother in, you know, the 1950s. The very typical 1950s housewife. I would argue she's more typical than Rose. That's very true. A hundred percent. We, I mean, we don't even know if Shirley is college educated. We know that Rose absolutely is. When we know that Rose's bachelor degree came from abroad. 
Yes. So we have no idea what Shirley looks like in that context. Shirley might not have been college educated. And so Shirley absolutely is the traditional housewife 1950s trope. But, you know, Joel in that context is definitely his father and mother's child because it's very clear when he tries to leave Midge for Penny Pan, that Penny Pan is indeed, quote unquote, as dumb as a Brillo pad. She can't even sharpen a pencil. Um, And that kind of gives him a feeling of control that he doesn't have with Midge because Midge is so independent, so sharp, is definitely college educated, as we know. Um, <laughs> and regardless of what the degree is being relatively useless, but she is at least educated and can hold her own. And that thought intimidates him. So naturally the response for him being a product of his parents and being so accustomed to the life in which the woman serves kind of in a docile role to the male is to want to mirror that and have a woman who's docile. But Midge is the furthest thing from docile, as we know. And that, I think, to him is incredibly intimidating. So I really feel like that moment in which he has this realization and, you know, in which he is shattered because he's trying to see that she's you know, in your words, she's trying to do right by him to elevate him in a sense is really a hard pill for him to swallow. But I think it makes him respect her all the more because and love her all the more even because he sees how hard she tried for him when he never really did the same in that respect for her. Right. And I totally agree with that. The one thing I will say is I don't necessarily think Shirley can't hold her own with Moish. Like, we've seen Shirley keep accounting, right? It's not good. <laughs> I mean, part of it's age Aramaic. But, like, and he did have to bribe the IRS, which is why they never came back. Right? Like, there's a, there is some stuff there that tells you that she's not a particularly good accountant. But, like, Moish wouldn't give it to her if he didn't actually think she could do it, right? Like, I, I definitely get to a sense that, like, there is, there is an equality to it. But it's not the same level as Abe and Rose. And I definitely think there's something to be said for the environment at that period of time that they grew up in. You know, like, they very much grew up in different households watching different relationships. You know, and they had, I think, very different expectations about what marriage is. I think, to your point, right, Shirley is very much a traditional housewife. Say what you will about Rose. And in a lot of ways, she is, and she tries to follow those guidelines, right? She is a homemaker, and she does keep the social life for the family. She is in her own way, a very powerful person in the Upper West Side and does have a role and a life outside of necessarily being at home all the time taking care of children or taking care of the house. Certainly can't cook, right? We know Zelda <laughs> exists so they don't end up dying because Rose ends up poisoning them because she can't cook. Like, that is very, very... The one thing you learned in the Paris sequence is like, Rose cannot cook. <laughs> Yes, very true. Right? Abe doesn't want a maid, but they have to have a maid because what did you make, right? Is it fish? Does it taste like fish? Makes that very clear, right? And if nothing else about what Shirley makes and whether or not it's 
it's delicious or edible, right? She makes the same four dishes and uses cabbage in a very punitive manner. She does her own cooking. And she's uncomfortable <laughs> with the idea of Zelda. And they have never been welcomed anywhere. Like, they give them a warning. There's a warning when they show up at Steiner Mountain Resorts, right? Like, this Rose Weissman has the power to get Jimmy his summer job at a law firm back, which, dear God, how much power does that woman have in New York? <laughs> and why? I mean... Abe threatened the wrong person with a cheese knife. <laughs> That's how the woman got that much power. She knows exactly what kind of jam to send to somebody's wife. But, like, that is who Midge thought she had to be, right? Because that's who her mother told her she had to be. Because I think in a lot of ways, that's who Midge's, or that's who Rose's mother told her she had to be, you know? And I don't think anybody sat, chilled down, and had a conversation about, like, these are the ex- these are honest expectations in a marriage, right? We know his parents stole money from him. Like, we see that with the bar mitzvah, and we have Moish basically saying it when he gives him the check that ultimately ends up opening the button club, right? It's not the healthiest relationship he has with his parents. His parents love him. His parents support him. But it's it's not a necessarily purely healthy relationship and i think that also twinge like colors it right if everything if moish if what moish says is true in that second episode at that dinner everything that he has is a direct result of his dad giving it to him and here you look over and there's this perfect wife who can do everything perfectly like that is the one thing we know about midge in the pilot is like she is living a perfect life because she is practically perfect you know, it's not just a question of, like, how emasculated do you feel in an era of heightened toxic masculinity, but, like, how much do you as a person, irrespective of gender, feel like a failure? And how much do you reflect that failure that you feel on the person who makes you feel it, directly, indirectly, whether or not that's their intention? And at what point do you lash out? Because it's clear his family has a history of lashing out. Exactly. No, very true. Good point. And that's not to say I don't like Moish and Shirley. I love Moish and Shirley. I'm just I'm just pointing out that they are very different and I feel like knowing the difference in their relationships I think is important to get to the point where he then sees her do the set and I think the set kind of crystallizes it in his mind that he really isn't good enough for her that he'll always love her he will always support her and that the best thing he can ever do for her is to let her go very true at a good point to move on so next we are going to segue into midge and Susie's dynamic and emily if you want to go ahead and take that away so i think first and foremost it really is the underpinning of the show this relationship between midge and Susie, and what i think really characterizes that relationship is just how codependent they are on one another. Midge, really, for all of her independence, which we've kind of talked about and alluded to, is inherently a social person who clings to people, right? She clung to her parents. She clung to Joel. And now that she's kind of been unmoored from both of them in different ways, right, she's looking for this other person to kind of fill that role as the yin to her yang. And here comes Susie, who has never, I don't think, had someone 
to rely on. But all of a sudden, here comes this person through whom she can actually achieve what she wants, which is a way out of her life. She wants something different. She wants success to use her own words. You know, I don't have a lot of money and I'd like some. I think, you know, that despite Susie's reticence to admit that they're friends, right, and to even take the friendship ring, I think it's not just a friendship or a working relationship for Susie, but a lifeline because she hasn't had close relationships. We've technically, we've really seen it with her, with her family. In particular, the closest relationship she has is with her sister, and that's not a great relationship, which I think all kind of informs in a unique way this triangle we almost see between Susie and Midge and Midge and Sophie and Susie and Sophie when she agrees to represent Sophie. So I think a really interesting question evaluating that codependency and like just how much they rely on and need each other, both as people who are growing and in terms of Midge's comedy and as that's growing is how should we read the jealousy that Midge has when she agrees to represent Sophie? Because there's part of me that thinks it really is coming from the well-intentioned place of Midge, the friend, who knows how much damage Sophie can wreak, who wants to protect Susie from it. Because while Susie claims she doesn't need protecting, for crying out loud, last time Sophie went after them, she got abducted by the two best kidnappers in New York. Who, you know, <laughs> the next group of people they said weren't going to be so nice. But my other thing that I think is coming from that codependency is... I think she might be genuinely afraid that if Su Sophie becomes even more successful than she is, if Susie dedicates herself to Sophie as much as she has to Midge, that she's going to lose Sophie. If she's going to lose Susie to Sophie, like she lost Joel the Penny. And I wonder how much of her jealousy or her concern or her just sheer determination not to let Sophie be a part of Susie's management, despite the fact that she at least nominally supports Susie Byerson Associates as a broader enterprise, kind of is coming out of, well, she left Joel and found Susie to fill the role of a partner, not a romantic partner, but a, a life partner, kind of, you know, someone to be there to help her grow as a person and to share the ups and downs of her success with her. And I don't think Midge knows what she'd do if she lost another person, particularly the one person who's helped build her back up again from losing Joel. But I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on Susie and Midge more broadly? Uh, well, let me start more broadly and then narrow it down. I definitely think that there is an element of codependency here. And I do agree with you in the sense that Susie is there to fill the void that Joel has left. I think that Midge inherently has a need to rely on others. And if she doesn't have people supporting her, she feels essentially obsolete, for lack of a better word, because she needs that validation in her life. She needs someone that she can rely on to be there for her, to support her, to tell her that she's doing well, and to tell her when she's not doing well. I think that Susie, in a sense, makes her more hyper aware of when she screws up. And I think that Susie, in a certain sense, is like Midge's conscience, if you will, because I think by and large, it's a lot of what she has is lacking in that sense. And I don't know for what reason she has this general naivete of the world, but I think Susie can really ground her and bring her back to sort of a, a sense of you messed up. Here's, you know, how you can make it better. Go out and do it. Um, and, you know, 
it's seen time and time again after she bombs Susie makes her get on stage again even though Midge does not want to go on stage again um and she makes her work through the issues same thing happens um again you know in Las Vegas when she has a horrible time doing the first set but then you know she goes and does a little bit of a more impromptu gig um, and then realizes, you know what, I'm back. Things are fine. Susie has really been kind of the inspirational force that has pushed her and motivated her to propel herself within her career and keep going and not just pack it in and say, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm done. So I think in that sense, um, the codependency is necessary. But in a more narrow context where we see this codependency, I genuinely feel like Midge is sincere in her saying that she supports the dream of Susie Meyerson and Associates. But at the very, very beginning at the USO, we see her lash out at Susie over the fact that she is trying to expand, which shows kind of an unhealthy codependency on Susie because she feels very possessive. And like you said, she's afraid that Susie, when spreading out her time between herself and Midge, you know, there's a chance that Susie is no longer going to be Midge's anchor. And so Midge feels like she's suddenly going to lose another person, which you really, really astutely point out is going to be a breaking factor her factor for her since she's already lost Joel. And if she doesn't have someone else to fill that void, then who will be there to listen to her, to ground her, to keep her, you know, rational. But in the same context, I also feel like she is a little bit manipulative with Susie Myerson and Associates because while she says she supports it and she wants it to happen, when they're in Florida and they're having the conversation, when they're walking back from the pool, before Susie leaves to go back to New York to be with Sophie for Miss Julie struck me as a little bit of a double-edged sword. And what I mean by that is, you know, it seemed like Midge was giving Susie good advice saying, you need to talk back to Sophie the way you talk back to me because when I'm out of line, you put me in place and you're afraid of Sophie. I don't know why you're afraid of Sophie, you know, paraphrasing here, but you need to stop being afraid of Sophie and you need to stand up to her because you stand up to me and that goes great. At the same time, when you keep in perspective who Sophie Lennon is, you know, that would generally be good advice, but with Sophie's character, strong will and determination does not necessarily get you to succeed, right? And Midge probably had that in the back of her mind, and at the very least could see that that might potentially sabotage the relationship between Susie and Sophie because Sophie is very nitpicky and likes to have things a certain way. And if you go against the way things Sophie wants it done, then ultimately you're dead to Sophie. And so I don't know what your thoughts are on that are, but to me that conversation really seemed like a kind of ulterior motive in my opinion. I mean, I think maybe she was thinking of that, but I think what's so astute in that conversation is Sophie's a bully. And whether or not she means it manipulatively or sincerely, and I think you could read the scene either way, Midge is right. 
like fundamentally Midge has called her character. And I think we talk in a lot of ways about Midge's naivete about how the world works and she is naive. And I think Abe would say the reason she's naive is she doesn't read, right? She doesn't know who Jack Kerouac or Jack Krakowak is, right? She's young, she should read, all she reads is Russian literature. She knows how to say that is, I, I live in the house on the hill, right? She knows who Lenny Bruce is and she knows who these comedians are, but she doesn't really understand the law or politics or the world around her. But she does know people. And I think that's the one thing we see on this show is she is such a people person. She has an understanding of who people are, of what make people tick, of what you need to do to get inside people's heads. And so I think fundamentally, right, even if what she says is like how you respond to a bully may be manipulative and may backfire and she may know it's going to backfire when she says it, she's not wrong. Sophie is a bully. And that is a way of dealing with bullies. And I don't think so. Susie would have followed the instructions from Midge if Susie didn't know at a fundamental level Midge was right. I think Midge points out a very interesting thing about Susie, which we can talk about in our Susie episode, which is for all of her bluster, Susie is a really easily intimidated person. I mean, she's had, what, three interactions with Rose Weissman and she's cried or lost it after two of them right? She, her mother made her cry on the phone, right? Not even in person. And how many drinks did Susie have <laughs> trying to keep up with her mother before she got called a circus freak and was told exactly what cage she'd be in? And I wouldn't necessarily say the plumber incident at the Yom Kippur dinner went great, right? <laughs> Rose Weissman is a very intimidating person. I am not saying she's not, but she's not Sophie Lennon, right? So, you know, love Susie, love all of Susie's bluster. Susie easily cows, and I think that's another thing that Midge was pointing out is like, as much as she loves Susie and as great as Susie is with her, Susie is stronger than Midge. Midge knows that, right? Not saying that Midge is weak, but Susie has been through more than Midge has and has a rougher exterior than Midge has and sees the world a lot more pessimistically than Midge because I think Midge inherently is an optimist. And I'm not saying that that means anything about strength or goodness or anything. I'm... But I, I do think Midge has rightfully pointed out, like, look, in, in our normal situation, you yell at me and I do it because I can be a little afraid of you. You're always afraid of Sophie. Sophie's never afraid of you. That if you want a relationship with her like you have with me, you have to be the bully. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think that's a good point. And I definitely agree in a sense that, you know, Sophie is definitely a bully, but I also agree in the sense that Susie, you know, at the very least, is an autonomous individual who probably would not heed Midge's advice if she didn't think that it could get her somewhere, in a sense. I don't know to what extent, and, and again, I don't think it necessarily matters, but I think perhaps, you know, Midge, at the very least, thought that things might go awry given certain advice and clearly that's not what happened at the outset i mean sophie really sabotaged the relationship with susie Myerson and associates on her own i was gonna say sophie completely but... self-sabotages like that is there is self-sabotage and then there is sophie lennon and miss julie i mean <laughs> so i mean one way or another it really wasn't gonna go well for sophie but at least at the very outset i think that midge had some sort of possessive motives especially because you know she's incredibly not over the fact that you know Sophie Lennon tried to blackball her essentially tried to ruin her career so 
I don't know. I, I feel like there definitely could have been some ulterior motives there, but who knows? Okay, I think this is a good place to switch over to our last topic, which more broadly is Midge herself and her relationship with herself and kind of as a subconscious, con, you know, struct of that category. That's it. A subcategory of her feminism because we do want to put these character analyses into larger historical context. And I think given the moment we're in currently, at least the 2020 political moment, I think it's important for us also when we can to put these conversations in the larger current political context. So I think we should probably start with Midge herself and then work our way into Midge's feminism, if that's all right with you. That's great. So if you want to kickstart it off, go for it. Okay. One of the things I find the most interesting about Mitch, and we have really touched on these two extremes in this conversation already, which is great, is Mitch is both hyper-competent and, like, practically perfect in a lot of ways, and is also complete, at times, completely unaware of anything other than herself. And I mean that both in terms of her naivete, but, like, her lack of external awareness, you know, she doesn't quite understand what being a stand-up comedian does to her mother, right? I don't think she's ever fully processed that her mother could have heard about the Midnight at the Concord and, like, what that would have done if her mother found out. Or she doesn't quite actually process, even though Shai has sat down and explained her to her, how bad it would be to be outed. I don't think she actually understands the consequences of outing Shai or what the consequences are of trying to take down someone like Sophie Lennon. Despite the fact that Mitch is the kind of person who can get up and give a blisterly funny set on Sophie Lennon five minutes after coming from the temple with her mother or on the spot perfectly recount the Yom Kippur dinner. Even in these hyper-competent moments where she's expressing and showing a lack of this awareness, you know, there is this constant tension. And I feel like for Midge, so much of what Midge is, is this constant fight between the perfection that she has within her or wants to present to the world and really the fact that she hasn't grown into herself yet it's not just she hasn't grown into midge Maisel the comedian right because this is something she's new at and she's still learning and i think even professional comedians who have been comedians for a long time probably still learn as they go particularly as taste change and humor change and culture changes but i don't even think midge was midge when she married joel i think there was still a lot of growing that Midge as a person had to do. And I think so much of this tension is reflective of Midge's growth as a person. And I think forcing her into this world of comedy as a coping mechanism with losing the world she thought she had built for herself is accelerating her growth in a way I don't think she would have had. Certainly, you know, being in a relationship with Joel, I think she would have grown, but I think this has accelerated her growth even from if she had just gone and worked at the Altman or had done gone back to school or done a million other things other than comedy. And I feel like the show really uses the comedy as a way of allowing Midge to grow into herself and her voice, even as she's still having these, you know, not necessarily saying taking her frustrations out on stage in her comedic sets or tantrums, but kind of sometimes feel like just these explosions that someone who had a better understanding of the world around her would know that's not the time or place. 
I definitely agree. And I, I think that the comedy career in, in and of itself puts her on a different trajectory than she otherwise would have been if she stayed within the status quo. And one of the things to consider about this comedy career as well is that it's something that's really making her self-sufficient. She, I don't believe, ever had the ability to be self-sufficient so long as she was tied down in a typical 1950s housewife relationship. And granted, even though she exemplified characteristics of a strong woman at that time, and she put on this facade that she was a docile housewife. She was never that conforming housewife to begin with, but at least within this moment of independence where she has this comedy career f pushing her forward, it really increases her ability to individualize at lightning speed, right? She's totally breaking out of her shell. She's coming to terms with the fact that she can say raunchy things and get away with it. She is coming to terms with the fact that she can, you know, get people to admire her for things that are happening in her life that otherwise seems so mundane and so frustrating that put her in a position which, you know, pigeonholes her into what society expects from her. And she can make light of it and kind of break out of those societal norms by telling jokes on stage. And I think that's something that really by and large empowers her and makes her feel that she can be this strong and independent entity without making apologies for it. And, and that's one of the things that's so fundamentally important about the comedy career versus you know, working the makeup counter at B. Altman, because as much as she loved doing something like that, as much as it speaks to who she is and what she does to prepare for her daily life and, and to keep up an image of a typical woman in the 1950s, it doesn't really drive at her deeper sense of wit and strength and courage and the desire to be her own person. And so I think it's absolutely important, you know, that she's fulfilling this role in comedy, regardless of how she's using it in a self-interested way, or blowing up her life as she's doing it, or not really thinking about the consequences, because that in, of, in and of itself is a learning experience for her. And it's going to make her a stronger person coming out of it. She has a lot of work to do, a lot of growth to do, and we've seen her grow already so much between the first and the third season where we're at right now, but she still very, very clearly has a lot of learning to do and does not understand the way the world works and that it's not Midge's world and everyone else is living in it. Quite the contrary, she needs to rein herself in and come to terms with the fact that she needs to give a little because she takes too much. So self-sufficiency is important, but she can't take too much. No, and I definitely think that's true. And I think something I was thinking of as you were talking is to her idea of she, you know, is an independent person, but she had never thought of being independent. Even unlike her mother, who like did build a life for herself before Abe, right? She left Oklahoma and created a new persona. Midge never had that. 
you know, this is Midge's first experience of actually like building her own self and her own identity. Yeah, definitely. And it really is formative of her becoming her own person in that sense, I think. So it, it absolutely necessary, something that needed to happen. And I don't think she would have gotten it from a traditional gender role otherwise. At least, you know, because she knows how strong-willed she is, not in the context of working a traditional job for women at the time. That is the perfect transition as we talk about Midge's budding individuality into talking about her feminism. So I'm sure most everybody who's listening to this podcast knows the main branches of feminism, but just in case, I'm going to summarize, you know, a couple of different branches and then you and I are going to get into a conversation about it because we have different, spoiler alert, we have completely different opinions about how to classify Midge's feminism. And that was reflective in the very non-scientific, barely anybody responded Twitter poll I took. But the main branches of feminism, at least as we think about it now, are liberal feminism, which is the personal autonomy, like living life of your own choosing, political autonomy, you know, conceptions of freedom. So things like identifying and removing conditions that prevent personal autonomy, allowing them to choose their own lives, you know, being free of violence and threats of violence, removing limits set by the patriarchy, paternalistic laws and norms, ability to assess your own individual preferences and then express them through the life that you choose to live, and fairness in personal relationships. You have black feminism, which is a specific form of intersectional feminism that holds that the experience of black women affects, reflects oppression as a result of sexism, classism, and racism. Uh, the only way to solve the crisis for them is through the end of white supremacy and the patriarchy simultaneously. There's libertarian individualist feminism, which is the self-ownership kind of feminism, which women who subscribe to this view believe that they should have the right to freedom from coercive interference, but the same treatment under the law so that all women are free does not mean that rights violations for others as a result of them exercising their own rights is unjust or invalid. So these would be things like guaranteed freedom of expression and conscience and control of one's own body, the ability to make money, to contract, things like that. But then these individual women who subscribe to this theory then also don't get super upset if when they exercise it, they've denied someone else the right to it. There's radical feminism, which comes actually out of the second wave, which is post Maisel itself, or at least in the Maisel timeline we have right now, which is a fundamental restructuring and reordering of society through the abolition of the patriarchy. And then you have socialist and Marxist feminism, which again arises during the second wave of feminism, so a little bit post-states Maisel, um, which is that economic and patriarchal oppression go together in order to subject women to a unique form of um, sexism. And so you have to change economic systems while you change the patriarchy in order to truly free women. So I'm going to let you go first, since you and the majority of the people who follow me on Twitter um, think one thing, and then I will respond with my thoughts. I don't know, because I've been changing my perspective a little bit, but I personally think she's a little bit of a liberal feminist. Okay, so you've changed since we had this conversation. Exactly, because I was trying to classify her and to, to force her into the bubble of, you know, being a libertarian slash individual feminist. And 
I feel like it's a little bit hard because she really doesn't meet every single aspect um, to peg her into that. I will go a little bit into why I initially thought that might be the case, but I think that by and large, after reassessing my stance on this, I think she does fall into the classification of a liberal feminist. And I think most of why I would brand her as that particularly is because she's trying to become so independent in the sense that she wants to live life as she chooses to live her life. She doesn't want to be constrained by the barriers that society is putting on her, i.e. she doesn't feel, as I was saying just before, compelled to work a traditional job. She enjoyed the B. Altman job while she was there, but she's breaking into comedy and she's happy to do it. This is something that she feels very passionately about. Comedy is typically a man's world. We see mostly men um, who are running clubs and who are harassing her. They talk about how women aren't funny and can't tell jokes. And so Midge is constantly constrained by society trying to push back on her and tell her that this is not the career she should be going into. But Ultimately, this is where she differs in that sense and is really trying to push to live her life as she wants to do and to make a career out of comedy. I was also thinking about it in terms of how she herself does not necessarily personally identify as a feminist, but when you listen to some of her sets, she especially later on, gets really, really heavily into the idea of the patriarchy, talking about men controlling women's bodies, how it's such a double standard for men having sex versus when women have sex, and the novel concept of birth control, um, and how birth control plays a role in the lives of married couples, and how there are so many gender norms and stereotypes within that area where women are typically constrained and don't have the option to take control of their lives. And in a way, it's kind of a twist on the way she views the world and how she believes that women should have kind of this autonomy to make their own choices and kind of decide where they fall into their relationships and how they want to handle their relationships at an individual level. I was also thinking as well, though, about her little impromptu speech that she gives at Washington Square Park, which was totally not something that she expected to get into. But she ultimately does kind of end up in this, you know, sense of political freedom from male dominated oppression within society. She does not herself think that she is capable of having such a feminist approach, but she takes this perspective pretty willingly. It was surprising how willing she was to accept that perspective that, you know, women can be independent, women should not be bound to the constraints that society have on them, and women ultimately don't need to meet men's objectives for them to live a comfortable or happy life. I even think back to her set when she talks about why do we have to pretend we're not hungry when we're hungry? Stuff like that. These are very typical societal expectations for women that are imposed upon them by men. 
And she's really trying to fight back and say, you know what, I am my own person and I have a right to decide how I want to view my life, how I want to handle my life and the choices I make that are going to ultimately impact life at large for myself and other people around me, if that makes sense. No, I mean, it totally makes sense. I mean, you know me, we've, we've had these conversations before that I very much firmly believe that she's a baby liberal feminist. I don't think if you ask Midge if she was a feminist, she'd say she wasn't. As a matter of fact, she says in one of her sets, I think it's the set her parents are there for, that like, I would not have made a very good feminist. And I think to a certain extent, it's probably true. Because I don't think she'd ever, even if she were to recognize she is one, I don't think she'd ever be proudly saying on the street, right? I, I mean, who knows, right? Her father was a communist. Like, who knows? Midge may go crazy during the second wave of feminism. Um... But I don't think Midge right now would, even if she knew she was a feminist, like go march in the street. But I don't think that means you aren't a liberal feminist. I think it means you aren't a radical feminist, but I don't think it means you aren't a liberal feminist. You know, there is a large debate, I think, currently, like, are you a feminist if you don't call yourself a feminist? And I think fundamentally, the way that we think about feminism generally is feminism is about believing that women inherently are equal to men and should be able to make their own choices. And if feminism is the ability to make your own choices I think Midge whatever she calls herself is one I think specifically she's a liberal feminist because so much of what makes a liberal feminist is the idea of personal autonomy writ large and whether Midge knows it or not whether Midge intends it or not whether it is something that she's ever even considered what Midge is doing specifically through choosing to leave her husband choosing to become a comedian is writ large opening up the space of choices for women I think it could be very easy to make the argument that she's an individualist feminist or a libertarian feminist because she sees it I think in her own mind well it's like well it's my life and it's my choices I should have the ability to get up on a stage and say what I want right I don't think if you ever pushed her she'd ever think about me getting up on a stage matters for somebody else but we've seen in this show Now, rightly or wrongly, what Midge has done to actively push against the patriarchy has then opened the women up around her to, in their own ways and in their own lives, either becoming vocal about it. I think Rose's argument in 3-2 with Midge saying that, like, you're the reason I'm passionate and independent and broke is wrong. Rose has always made her own choices. She may have let everyone else around her believe they were making the choices for her, but she'd always made the choice, right? It's clear she's funded everything they've done for 31 years. And even if she didn't choose what they were doing, choosing to fund it's a choice. But seeing Midge openly make these choices, I think has given Rose some of her independence from her youth back, where I think she's seen it and goes, okay, I can be open about it, right? Midge had her life blow up when Chelsea did on her and Imogene goes to secretarial school. Imogene, the first thing she says is disparaging shorthand girls, goes and becomes one at the end of season three because of what she's seen with Midge and knowing she can choose to be her own person outside of Archie, who she adores, right? I think if we look at personal autonomy and liberal feminists changing it for everyone versus changing it for themselves, which is much more of a libertarian thing, I think the effects of Midge's choices because of the choices she's making have made it less of a libertarian me, myself, and I and more of a universal. And I think what's really telling to me is 
if we define personal autonomy as the ability to assess your own preference and then make a choice and live your life that way, that's all Midge has done from the moment Joel left her, is what do I want? I don't want to get back together with him. I won't. What do I want? I like this comedy thing. A lot of people don't like that I do it. I still want to do it and I will anyway. I want to be good at this. I'm going to get someone who will make me good at this. I will do what I need to do to survive and to be successful in this. And if I push against people and the patriarchy that don't like it, all the better. I'm going to bite through it. And changing and, you know, removing those limits is further embedded in making sure you're living your own life experience. But I, you know, to the point uh, that a lot of people have expressed and to the point you had earlier, I do think fundamentally as Midge sees it at least, it is self-ownership. I should have the right to get up on that stage. I should have the right to have my own bank account. I should have the right to raise my children how I see it. I don't necessarily know if Midge thinks of other people. I think Midge's actions have changed other people. I agree. And I think where, you know, the idea of libertarian feminism really kind of lost me. I was thinking about the kind of the fundamental difference here with, you know, Midge having the freedom, the idea of freedom to contract and the freedom to to control, acquire and transfer property. This to me is where I saw the biggest breakdown, because while we see her, you know, in season three, trying to buy the apartment for her parents back from Moish, right, that you can kind of bump into bubble that bubble about controlling acquiring and transferring property but to me it seemed like it wasn't necessarily for the purpose of herself right i don't think she has the aspiration to be that on her own i think she likes some sort of order in her life in which there is another person who is there to make those types of decisions for her and a lot of it is seen as well when she has you know susie handle the financial situation because she doesn't trust herself to handle the money and the accounting that that they're dealing with. I think that she fundamentally likes to have that kind of order in her life where she's not autonomous in that sense. Someone else is kind of in control of that because she doesn't really know how to handle it. So in that sense, she would probably defer to an external force, even if it does involve the patriarchy in some sense, she probably wouldn't mind a husband being there telling her how to go about that and what to do in that context. And that for me was kind of the fundamental breakdown that I had with libertarian feminism, because I don't think she's completely opposed to the idea of having this type of structure. I just think that she wants to approach feminism from a context where she at least is free to make her own choices and create a safe space for for other people to kind of, you know, whether directly or indirectly do what she's able to do. And I think that's a great place to wrap. Perfect. I agree. So based on popular demand, next time, which maybe in the next few weeks, maybe in the next month, we'll be focusing on the second half of the Marvelous Duo at the center of the show, Susie. Tune in next time. In the meantime, please feel free to engage with us on our social media outlets. We have a Twitter for our specific podcast. At T-Y-A-N-G-N pod. That's also our Insta handle. And I am at at the Weissman. And I'm at Mazelis on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Tune in next time. Neither one of us are Mrs. Mazel. Thank you and good night. <laughs>